The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Mark McDermott to the Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan. Mark is the co-founder and CEO at ScreenCloud, a global digital signage platform with offices in Europe, Asia, and the States. They're funded by Point9 Capital. And ScreenCloud help businesses communicate meaningful content using screens. They basically supercharge the way that companies display, interact with, and act upon key news and, and key information and insights. They're on a, a mission to make dumb screens smart and to take digital signage away from the IT teams, handing it over to marketing, where, of course, it belongs. So, Mark, welcome to the Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan. Thank you very much for having me. Now, let's go back in time, back uh, about four years. How, when, and why did you launch ScreenCloud? Yeah, so ScreenCloud actually kind of evolved out of a previous business. So me and my two co-founders, David and Luke, we actually started working together back in 2004. We ran an agency doing digital design and build services for brands. And then over time, uh, over the last 10 years, we started to also invest our profits from the agency into building our own products. So we had a suite of various different products, some SaaS products, some mobile products, kind of a, a various, a bit of an eclectic mix, really. And ScreenCloud was one of those. That kind of started in 2014. And then it became fairly evident in that first year that this product was going to be way, way bigger and had way more potential than the other products that we'd built. So we decided in 2015, we were going to flip ScreenCloud out of the agency product digital studio into being its own company. Me and Luke went onto it full time, raised some you know, friends and family angel money, and then sort of started to build that company out whilst David looked after the services company. And then when ScreenCloud had started to show its true potential and, and we were ready to raise more, it was time to divulge ourselves of the other businesses. So we sold the agency, sold some of the products or, or closed them down, the smaller ones, and went on to this full time. So that was quite an amazing journey, really. Launching a company is not easy, but simultaneously running another one <laughs> and then trying to sell it whilst also raising money was definitely... Um, I think we would describe those as pretty challenging years, but, but we got through there. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Glad you made it through. How challenging was it to switch from being an agency person to being a product and platform person? Yeah, it's a good question. I think for me and Luke, we had already really run our course with agency. Agency work is relentless. You know, you're always going out, pitching new business, you don't have the recurring, the natural recurring revenue that you do in SaaS. So as a business model, it is really challenging. So actually, we were kind of done with it a bit and wanted to move to a new way of working. So for us, I don't think it was too hard. But we did take from the initial team of ScreenCloud were some of our team from the agency. And I think it was a case of them having to sort of unlearn and relearn a lot of the principles of how we might operate. So I think in 2015, that was the year that we really made that, that change and that difference. But because we were mentally ready for that, I think we were 
we adapted quite quickly because we all we all wanted to. I suppose the irony being that once a SaaS reaches a certain level of maturity, a lot of those agency skills start to come back when you're working with your larger customers, doing things like professional services. It's kind of funny that five years later, a lot of the stuff I do really relates back to skills that I picked up doing my sort of 15 years of agency. Let's come up to date. How has COVID-19 impacted on the way you run your business? Have you had to change your working practices or change your go-to-market strategy? So yes, there has been impact. Um, If we sort of begin with working practices, when we started ScreenCloud, we've actually always been distributed. So, So Luke has always been based in Thailand, even though he's British as well, but he's been based in Thailand. So from 2004, our operations have been in both the UK and Thailand. So we've kind of grown up like working in a distributed manner, which I think was relatively early for a company like ourselves. So when we started ScreenCloud, obviously those two locations were there from, from the beginning. I also wanted to move away from the dependency on having a single office location, which again, with the agency we had had, which had been quite a big overhead and had meant for like not a particularly flexible way of, of operating, which personally I didn't want to, to, to push. I didn't feel like the modern way. So with ScreenCloud, we decided that everyone working in the company should be able to work, as long as they have a laptop and an internet connection or a phone, that they should be able to do their job to the fullest extent. So you know, we don't even have a filing cabinet. Everything is in cloud-based. If I've got my laptop, I can operate at full full capacity. And so that was a principle of the business from day one. And therefore, when COVID-19 came in, that sort of didn't really change everything. We were working in a, I suppose you'd say, we were using hubs. So we have our hub in Belfast, in LA, London, and Bangkok. So people do come into the office, but they're more than welcome to also work from home anytime they like. Sometimes they may work from home in the morning, come in the afternoon. So the only real difference was just shutting down the hubs and having everyone work from home. Technically and culturally, we were ready for this, but it is still a big difference. I mean, you know, we're now several months in, you know, I haven't been into the office for a lot, you know, since lockdown. And I'm feeling that feeling of a bit of detachment, like not quite feeling on the pulse of it. So that has impacted a bit in terms of, and I'm hearing that from other members of my team that we are looking forward to being back. But the model that we want to go back to was our previous model of this coming in, but not having to come in. So operationally, uh, it was almost no real difference to us. In terms of the business, obviously, we, we operate screens which tend to be in public spaces. So when lockdowns come in, that, that's not great news for us. We have 9,000 customers. And a lot of those customers, especially from the earlier days of ScreenCloud, are in the SMB and mid-market space. So we were braced for quite a challenging time. We took preemptive action and we decided that we would communicate very, very early. It was actually even before lockdown occurred in the UK and the US that we would say any business that was locking down their location, we would give credits for. So they wouldn't even need to think about cancelling or anything like that. They would just be credited for their accounts. And fair number took up that. She some said, don't worry, we, we, we don't. You know, it's only going to be a few months and we want to support you. So we're happy to keep paying. But I think people really appreciated the gesture that we made. And obviously for the smaller customers, that has been helpful in terms of just aligning us to show that we really are on the side of our customer 
and that we don't, even if they're on an annual contract, we still don't want that to be a reason that they are not getting any value from our product for a while. So I think the credit system has really helped. There has been churn, of course, especially the smaller businesses and the ones mostly affected, say, in retail and hospitality, although they are not our biggest sectors. But it's actually been a lot less than we, we had modeled for. We'd modeled for quite a bad hit because we had to you know, make some changes ourselves to our budgeting and how we were going to plan out the way we were going to spend money this year and what that money was likely to be. But actually, we modeled much, much more drastically than what actually happened. And in fact, we're talking now in June. You always have to you know, time check these things because the world's moving so quickly. And growth is now coming back. And we're actually seeing growth. And we hadn't anticipated growth really to come until maybe later in the summer. But growth is coming back now. So it hasn't been financially as bad as we had expected. That's really good to hear. Very encouraging. Have you been able to access any of the UK's lockdown funding initiatives, the grants or the loans? Yes. So we managed to get some of the the initiatives from the US as well. The acronym escapes me. I think it was PPP, which was the system for employees in the US. So actually, the the US government came through the quickest on that one, which was helpful. In the UK, we've managed to defer payments on our PAYE. So although that money is obviously still owed, it's, it's deferred back a bit on a payment plan, which is helpful. We used the UK furlough scheme for a number of our team, which I actually think that has been very, very helpful because although it's no fun being furloughed, it takes away that drastic decision-making, which if you think, you know, given my earlier comment, you know, we were expecting much worse, then we may have had to, we may have talked ourselves into doing bigger cuts than was re- actually required because of there's so many unknowns. So I think furlough has allowed for, for some flexibility there to just to kind of settle in and, and just think, all right, how are we going to cope with this? And just give that breathing room when, when everything is kind of looks like it's on fire. That was very useful. We have also, I don't know the outcome yet. I think I'm actually supposed to hear about it today. But we did do some a funding application with the Future Fund, where for any, I guess, US listeners or, or non-UK listeners, they won't know this. This is um, a convertible note. So we used our existing investors, Point Nine and, and other existing investors, put some more money in. And then the UK government pledges to match that, to co-invest that money with them on a convertible note uh, for the future. And so we've put something in there, which, is, which will be useful for us, for sure, as a bit of a bridge. I don't know the outcome, but we got that in literally as soon as it um, opened. But it was oversubscribed, double oversubscribed in one day, from what I hear. Hopefully you'll get some positive news later <laughs> today on, on that front. How have you maintained your physical and mental fitness during the lockdown? Yeah, so actually at the beginning of lockdown, I actually got COVID myself. So that was a bit another blow. Thankfully, it got no worse than an extremely bad cough and some minor breathing issues, but I didn't have to go to hospital or anything. So for the first two weeks, I was actually quite sick, although... I wasn't really in a position to take any time off, but I, you know, I mean, obviously being at home was okay. But given that it was only just really bad coughing, I didn't need to be in bed for it as such. So, so that was quite a nasty start. Like it, it really did all come at once. <laughs> Sometimes in life, I find that that's better. If I'm honest, if you're going to have bad news, you may as well just pile it on. I mean, if you're in if you're in wartime mode, you may as well just keep on going. 
that wasn't a particularly good start. And obviously during that time, I couldn't do much apart from you know, drink a lot of hot fluids and try and keep myself, get myself better. But actually, I, I have a hobby job where I, I teach fitness. I teach strength and conditioning fitness in gyms. I do group exercise. So I teach a class called Les Mills Body Pump, which is quite well known in most gyms. And I'm an instructor for that. That's a, a hobby that I use. I don't have kids. I don't have a family. So for me, at the early days of Screen Cloud, I found myself just seven days a week, just constantly working. And I sort of burned out a little bit in 2016, you know, especially when we had the other business going and there was just a lot going on. And that really wasn't very good for me. And, and I wasn't really operating at like my optimal capacity. Group exercise had been something I'd always loved previously. And so I started to go back to those classes and kind of treat going to classes just in the evenings and mornings, a few days a week as kind of a, I would treat it like a meeting. I would be there and commit. And after a year of doing that, I literally just went to every class every week. <laughs> the instructors, I was more regular than the instructors and actually got to know the instructors quite well. And so they said, maybe I could teach. So I took that on as a really interesting learning exercise. And there's a whole, I could say so much about that. Obviously, you know, when I teach a class of 30 people to exercise, all sorts of different people, a whole range. And um, it has really massively improved my, my public speaking, my confidence, and my ability to connect with people. And so in lockdown, you know, I now teach traditionally prior to lockdown, I, I taught four classes a week in like Virgin Active Fitness First kind of gyms. Obviously, they all stopped. And what I did was I knew that my members and people were going to really, really miss the connection. And I know everyone can you know, work out at home, but it's actually like there's a lot more to fitness than just working out. There is that connection, that psychological mental health element. And in group exercise, we get a real sense of belonging. And so I started to teach once I was fit again. I've been teaching classes online for free using Zoom. And um, I teach six classes a week. So I, I taught this morning at eight o'clock. I had my class and I just teach. I've been teaching and I will keep teaching for the rest of lockdown, giving those classes away for free and just connecting with people and just making sure people are getting through it. So that has been a real benefit for me and hopefully for the other people. Um, it has been quite successful. I usually have about 10 or 15 people in each class and they've all privately, a lot of them have privately messaged me saying how much they appreciate it and stuff. So it's been good. That makes me feel like I'm helping in some small way, but also it's keeping me fit, keeping me to a schedule as well. But you can't wait to get back into the gym and start running those classes face-to-face yeah, -face again. That's true. Although I must say, I'm going to keep going with the Zoom classes a bit as well, because I found that I've connected with people, usually kind of people I know in my network or friends who live in more rural areas where they don't have access to stuff like this. And also a lot of working parents who with young children really struggle to get into the gym. And with this, you can work out at home, you can have the kids around or in another room, and you don't have to have childcare. So it's really opened up this connection which they were lacking. And so I think I don't want people to lose that. And, and so actually, I'm going to keep going with the Zoom stuff, but on a cut down basis. But yeah, obviously, when you're in the gym, you've got the proper equipment, the lighting system, the sound system. I mean, it's so much more of an event. And I do really miss that. I mean, it, that feeling of being up on stage and having everyone and that energy in the room is, you can't be replicated on Zoom, really. I shall see you on Zoom at eight o'clock tomorrow for your next class then. looking. Bring looking it on. Yeah, everyone is welcome. Everyone's <laughs> welcome to join me.
Now, ScreenCloud implemented a complete platform rebuild three years ago, and this really fascinates me. You achieved that at the same time as you tripled your revenues. So what was the rationale for the rebuild? And how did you manage to execute on that rebuild whilst still ramping up the sales? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll start by prefacing by saying I wouldn't advise this as a strategy at all. (laughs) I think this is probably a last resort. (laughs) In fact, I saw a really good presentation the other day by David Sachs, who was the uh, he was one of the PayPal founders, I think, or early PayPal and Yammer. And, and he talked about like this being the equivalent of the death of a startup if you do a full factor rebuild. So to rewind a bit and give the context, when we started ScreenCloud, the opportunity that we'd seen was that although you, know, you go into like um, a major retailer or an airport, you see screens everywhere. They look pretty fabulous. They, they look great. So that problem kind of had sort of been solved at the high level. But if you wanted to put screens into your business, just yourself without spending hundreds of thousands, no one really knew how to do it. There wasn't really a brand out there in the same way. If someone said, I just want to build a website for my business, my small business, you could say, all right, WordPress or Squarespace or Wix. That brand didn't exist for screens. And really the incumbents were only interested in those much kind of upmarket, upscale brands and larger implementations. So we wanted to be that mass market brand. And therefore, we didn't anticipate that the enterprise clients would be that interested in what we were doing, because we were just going to be a software specialist. We weren't going to produce hardware. We were going to build on top of existing consumer hardware. So things like Google Chromecast or Amazon Fire TV, just using regular screens. So nothing too fancy, just stuff you can easily buy on Amazon or Best Buy, wherever you like and can set it up yourself and, and, and work with that. So that was the opportunity that we saw, and we built towards that. I suppose the mistake would have been that actually large enterprises, if we'd looked really at the playbooks of how it's gone for other bottom-up enterprise plays in, uh, of previous SaaS businesses, you could see that the enterprise almost always comes knocking on your door at some point if you've done a really good job of building a good product. Because the actual needs in terms of software, they're fairly universal in terms of you want great software to run those screens. And so in 2017, we started to have these much larger brands coming our way, brands like T-Mobile and Amazon and ABB and, and like a whole host of other ones. So, so they were, we really they were calling them. you or emailing yeah. you or? They were they mostly inbound, inbound requests. We went just to explore that for a second. One of the principles that I've long-term, a long-term held belief is the power of content. I know it sounds kind of almost obvious, but I'm a true believer in the power of content, but not getting some writer to spend 30 bucks putting a spammy SEO type thing up, <laughs> like proper content, like content which you read where you learn, where you take away something, like, like this podcast, right? This will no doubt elevate your brand like but you're producing quality content it's actually going to help people i'm a big big believer in that so even when we didn't have much money that was one of the recruitment strategies we had was that we would dedicate ourselves to putting out good content which talked about the problem didn't talk about ourselves it talked about the problem we were trying to solve in normal everyday language because people don't understand the terminology and the vernacular of your industry all of acronyms and all of that 
They're just going to put the words into Google that they understand. And I wanted us to be found. And so we went very big into written content and then subsequently also into video content. And we have a, a whole in-house team producing that. We've even done online learning courses, eBooks, et cetera. But genuinely, it's quality stuff. And that's how people tend to find us. So that's how they were finding us. They were, they were putting, they were wondering, like, I suppose you'd call them the intrapreneurs, like the people inside of these large companies who are entrepreneurial in spirit, who want to solve a problem, but don't know how. They were the ones who were connecting with us, finding us, and then thinking, oh, this seems to be what I need, getting in touch, and then we were working with them. But what we realized pretty quickly was once we'd been successful in, say, a pilot project, often this is usually a smaller team inside of a T-Mobile or an ABB, just want to use it for like a handful of screens in their department. But then what happens if, if it's successful, more departments want it, and it starts to become a thing. And if the thing becomes a really big thing, then suddenly you're into the whole land of the proper procurement and RFP processes. And the reality was we had not architected ScreenCloud for that use case properly. So Luke's in Bangkok, I'm in London, and then David's in London too, or he's actually about to emigrate to LA. We often meet up in Dubai. That's where we go and sort of sit in a hotel for a few days and do our strategy. So we knew that we needed to address this. We sat in Dubai for a week. And we tried every different solution we could to not re-architect the platform. And on about day three or day four, the penny dropped that we just, we hadn't built it in such a way that it was going to scale out to truly allow a network of many thousands of screens to comfortably operate. Technically it was possible, but it would not have been a satisfying experience. So we took the decision to re-architect the, uh, the platform. So that design began in 2017. It kind of kicked off in earnest in 2018. And it finally was delivered at the end of 2019. And during that time, we both tripled in size and doubled in size in those two years, those 2018 and 2019, which was somewhat of a miracle, I would say, because all of our development resource, apart from fixing a few bugs and a few changes, was going into the new platform. But thankfully, because we have spent most of our adult lives building product, we built something that was, although it wasn't scalable for enterprise, it was pretty robust and it actually held up. And we, we just kept the sales and marketing focus on the kind of companies that the previous platform would be most suitable for whilst building the other one at the same time. And it was hard, like extremely hard to do this and a bit frustrating but we got through to the other side and now this year, well, end of last year, this year, we're now deploying that new platform in with our biggest customers. And actually COVID's been sort of useful because we have to migrate our largest customers over. We've been using the, the lockdown to do the migration because there's not really much risk of the screens, you know, not working if it goes wrong or something like that. But if you are going to do it, Try and keep your first product as robust as possible so that you can still have a good chance of selling it because you can always find more customers that look like your current customers. And our current customers were very happy with the previous product. It was just the big ones that wanted more. So we had high NPS scores. So for them, all they really noticed was that maybe there weren't as many new features coming quite as quickly as before. But we did tell people that that's what we were doing. So we kind of brought them along on the journey released some videos showing the designs and kind of built hype as we went along. So it wasn't a grand reveal. People were aware of what we were doing. I'm glad you made it through that challenging phase and now you're out the other side. 
You mentioned a COVID-related tidbit on content. So um, let's hear some more about that. Yes. So if you really dig into content marketing, this is kind of things that I've learned from our content team who really are excellent, is that over time, not every blog post you write is going to be born equal. Like some of those blog posts, no matter how good you've written them, they're just not going to, they're not going to really pick up on the search engines. They're not going to really connect. But there are going to be certain posts which just outperform massively and they're called, end up calling them content pillars. So those content pillars, they will outperform almost all of the other, like it's usually about 10% of your content will be responsible for 90% of your good rankings, but also you know, connecting with the right customers because you don't just want to rank, you want to rank to the right people. So with those content pillars, what you then tend to do is go back to them, keep them updated, keep them refreshed, even like actually add more sections. Those things sometimes become very kind of long and really big, 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 long posts and things like that. So the content pillars, we became pretty aware of what our top 10 were and put a lot of energy into perfecting and optimizing those pillars. Now, pre-COVID, we knew for the last year or so exactly what those content pillars were. What became so interesting was as soon as COVID, and this is all in our analytics that prove this, the top 10 content pillars completely changed. There were posts that we'd written more about, about flexible working, about kind of working from home, about corporate comms and how you communicate with your team. Effectively, because everyone's, you know, a lot of the previous content pillars were quite how-to, like how to put my dashboard on a screen, how to do, you know, they were quite practical. And then the ones that came up in COVID were very much more, how do I do this? Like, how do I communicate in this way? They were much more around learning and education than they were about that practical how-to. Because people, I guess, during lockdown, they have more time and they're planning things out, but they're not necessarily doing a lot of these projects. And so, again, if you think about it, like, that's really probably why we started to grow again. And we still had new business inquiries coming through during that time because we reduced our discretionary spend on you know, Google and Facebook a lot because, again, we'd anticipated people wouldn't be buying. But still people were finding us, but they were finding us through this different route. And again, having owning that content, owning the IP of that content, having made all of that content, we'd actually future-proofed ourselves. <laughs> Admittedly, we hadn't realized we were going to do that, <laughs> but that was a kind of benefit that came out of it. But again, just one of the many mysteries of content, really, that came, that came from that. So, so that's been fascinating. And also, I think it's what's helped us bounce back quicker. Sounds like I need to borrow your content team for a week or two. But uh, anyway, moving on, yeah. moving on quickly. So you've expanded rapidly, globally, offices across Europe, Asia, and the States. What have been the biggest challenges from a talent and team building perspective? And what would you do differently next time, knowing what you now know? Having a truly distributed team you know, across those three continents, and also each office does something slightly different. So our engineering is done in Belfast and in Bangkok. In LA, it's sales and marketing, and London's kind of HQ account management. So even each office, just because of the nature of what the office does, has a slightly different culture. But then obviously, you have the extra cultural aspects of, I mean, even the difference between London and Belfast, you know, they're very, very different places. So you definitely have a challenge on culture, because you cannot have a single culture. It just, it's just not appropriate. 
you have kind of core values and, and a core culture, but then a twist. So the way that people work and, and want to work in Thailand is, is really different from the UK. And the UK is similar, but still somewhat different from America as well. So you have to respect that and allow for that change. So that can feel a bit difficult sometimes. And especially when we don't have founder presence in every single office, that's also you know, a bit of a challenge. But I think on the whole, we have done a reasonably good job on that. And, and, and we, we do keep people well connected through Slack as our main kind of community tool and things like that. Once a year, we have Screen Cloud together. We fly everyone in and we, we get out into nature typically. And, you know, that's a really powerful culture builder. So I think we've done quite well there, but it's certainly not easy. I think the two things I would say which are kind of tricky, the first would be building out your teams in sort of non-obvious locations. There are pros and cons to that. So in Belfast and Bangkok, there are not unicorn tech businesses, really. There are very large companies there, but not really like what you'd expect to see in San Francisco or even to a degree LA, London for sure. And so the ecosystem, the talent you've got, they haven't, they're not drawing from experience of ever having seen truly rapid scale. They've either worked in a very large company, a corporate company, for example, which is at scale, but they haven't seen it scale, or they've worked in smaller businesses or agencies and things like that. But what they haven't necessarily seen is a company going from, you know, 2 million to 10 million in like a year or two. The speed at which things change can take them by surprise. And, you know, sometimes people are a little nostalgic for the old days of when it's like the small team and it's suddenly doubled and that can feel a bit uncomfortable. Whereas I imagine that the talent pools in, a, in New York or San Francisco or even London to a degree, they're more used to seeing that and that's kind of built into their expectations. So that can be kind of tricky. That said, you can be a fairly big fish in that small pond earlier than you, than you otherwise would be. And it is exciting to be a company like in Thailand. I think we're probably one of the biggest SaaS companies already, which we wouldn't be in the US or UK for sure. So there's pros and cons around that. I think the other thing that I'm looking back at, at what we did, I would have built out our people team a lot earlier we'd managed to get to 45 people. We hadn't um, hired anyone on the HR or people side yet. And that was already probably too late. We brought someone in who, who was really experienced, but came from more of a corporate background. And that didn't really work out. But during the year that that was all figuring out, it, didn't, it wasn't a disaster by any stretch, but it probably wasn't really what we needed and, and what she needed either. But nonetheless, during that year, we went from 45 to 90. So we scaled up and then like when she left, suddenly we were literally without a proper people team. I mean, we had some junior staff that were helping on that side, but no one really leading it because the leader left. And suddenly you're at 90 people and your people function is somewhat immature. And that is problematic because you're already at too big a scale to not have that. And, you know, given that, although we've got a lot of experience in business, our previous experience was more in SME and SMB business. And we, you know, we never had an HR team when we were the agency. We wouldn't be able to afford that. We had an office manager, I suppose, was doing a bit of it, but not in the same degree. So I think um, my big learning, if I was go back and do it again, would be bring senior people who've seen scale, <laughs> emphasis on that, who've, who've <laughs> scaled up before, up earlier into the, into the leadership team 
and set yourself up for scale at an earlier stage than you think. It's so hard to find people like that, although as we get more and more successful scale-ups, the availability is uh, beginning to increase somewhat. So the future is a little brighter. And that's why we ended up going for someone who had like worked at a large scale but hadn't seen scale up because the people that we originally got through on those original shortlists was either coming from a corporate background or from a really small background. Some people who'd worked in small business were trying to tell me and explain to me that because they'd worked in small business, they knew all about it. But there's an enormous difference between a small business and a small business which is just scaling. Small businesses tend not to scale that quickly. You know, in the agency days, we may add three or four people a year, not 45. <laughs> it's massively different. Also, as you're going up market as a, um, as, a, as a company, you're working with these bigger enterprise clients, you know, the types of people you need to attract in are also different. So it's going at such a quick pace to try and do it yourself is, is just not a good idea. So how is your own role? A CEO and co-founder evolved as your business has scaled? That's something I think about constantly. And every year I feel that my job radically changes. And I also feel that I feel a sense of a need to grow a lot as a person and to take on challenges that I'm otherwise scared of and or have previously been scared of. So for example, it may not come across now certainly if you came and watched me in the gym you wouldn't see this but i'm actually a very shy person when i was a teenager i would say i was painfully shy really i annoyed myself how shy i was but i you know you couldn't help how you how you feel but i always wanted to work on that and i knew that i wouldn't really get very far in life if i didn't address my shyness so now i'm up there in front of 30 people on a stage <laughs> booming out exercise but that doesn't happen overnight it's funny because people see me now and I do a lot of public speaking. I'm, you know, I'm on this podcast. I'm not feeling particularly nervous about it. Glad to hear that. <laughs> no, no, exactly. I mean, it's not live, I suppose. But even if it was, I would be fine with it. But I really have pushed myself into very uncomfortable situations. I mean, the first time I ever stood up and taught a class, I felt like the biggest fraud of all time. But I was using that because I knew that if I could conquer that, then my shyness in business would would easily, you know, it, if you can do that, you can do this, basically. And it's not just around that, but I look at all of the things that I, I feel I'm weak on and I try and address them. I mean, another thing that I need to, to address better is I'm not particularly numerate. I always struggled a bit with maths at school and I kind of avoided it because I was bad at it. And obviously now my numerate competency is, is even though we have a CFO, I need to be stronger there. So I suppose what I do is each year I reflect and look at the areas that I need to improve on. I mean, not, not to be too cruel on myself. We're expecting them to move and evolve rapidly. And I don't consider myself exempt there. I need to grow to be the CEO that this company needs in the future, just like my teams need to adapt and learn. And if they see me taking on the stuff that I am struggling with, and to a degree, it, let's not say conquering it, but improving on it, then I feel that that paves the way what they need to do as well, because I'm not asking them to take on a challenge that I'm not prepared to take on myself. Specifically, how does the role change? I mean, obviously, at the very beginning, we put, apart from some budget into the content side, 
almost all of our other budget went towards engineering and product. And therefore, at the beginning, I was anything else. So finance, admin, sales, support, HR, you name it, that was me. So obviously, extremely hands-on doing most of that work. And obviously, the predominant amount of work was sales and support. You know, Now, I am not frontline sales. I'm still involved in sales, especially with our biggest customers. But I'm not, I'm not the person running that anymore, obviously. And I'm more about trying to coach and, and work with those teams. So you, you move into more of a coaching role. And actually, even now, now we're bringing in more of our VP layer, even the coaching is probably not as required as it was because, frankly, those, <laughs> those VPs are better than me, <laughs> which, uh, which is good, <laughs> right? So actually, now I find myself looking more at strategy and direction and being one of the few people in the company who can genuinely take time to consider the future and to, to think deeper on the problems that are probably coming down the road rather than the problems or the, you know, the, the workload which is on the plate for today. What's your vision for the future? What will Screen Cloud have become by the summer of 2025? Oh, by the summer of 2025. I do have a vision about this. I'm quite excited about this. Although we are a digital signage platform, and that's sort of what we are first and foremost, because I think screens really have been underutilized massively in businesses, especially you know, inside kind of corporate businesses that normally blank or not really doing very much. And I think they could work much harder and really take that third screen status. But it's not all about the screens. You know, my background isn't in screens at all. My background is in, is in the internet, in, in web. And I'm really excited about where companies are going. I think it's been a tragic period. 2020 has been such a tough year on so many levels for people and for our, for our society. But I think there will be positive that comes out the back of this. And I think that that will be a lot of the ways of working that we've been traditionally holding on to. I think they're being killed off. And it feels like we're going into a new age. I was even reading this morning about how in South Korea, where COVID now is pretty much non-existent, and they've been very, very good at how they've managed that, they had something like 98% of people were working in an office. Like they didn't really have a work from home culture at all because there was a lot of showing face and you know showing that you were there and turning up. But actually, a lot of people are choosing not to go back to the office and wanting to you know hold on to that work from home. And you know if that's happening in a culture like like South Korea, it's going to happen everywhere else too. So we can learn from this. And this was the way we were always working anyway, and it was working. You know, parents were having less stress managing it. So where do I think screen cloud fits? If you're going to have a more flexible workforce, if it's going to be more distributed around the world or around your country, if you're going to open up to this idea of some remote work or even fully remote work, although I don't think many companies will go fully remote really in the end. I think they'll be more like our model. You're going to need your communication game to be absolutely on point. Today, I don't think most companies communicate with their teams that well. I think they overuse and oversaturate certain channels like email. I think they write big, long emails and a lot of old school sort of leaders, they don't come, you know, they don't make videos and they, they're often, they're very like long emails and, and, and long occasional presentations written by other people. How leadership engages with its team and, and becomes more empathetic and more open, I think is super exciting. So how does ScreenCloud play a role? I think we're the glue that helps that. 
I think we're going to break beyond just TV screens into desktops, into laptops. But more importantly, it's about making the content that comes out reflect back the business that it really is, not just to be corporate propaganda, not just to be HR updates or security updates, to to share the experience across the business so that you feel more connected, more engaged, more up to date with what's going on. And if companies do that better, they will perform better and they will see productivity increases. They will see retention. They will see people, the best people want to come and work there. And I think we can play a pivotal role in doing that. Um, we haven't got there yet, but that, that is the mission that, that we are on. And I'm like super excited about how we can do that. So that's where I want us to be. And I want us to be the brand that helps companies do that. Well, that's a, a really inspiring vision. Um, I certainly hope you and the team can make uh, rapid progress towards that vision. It's been fascinating learning about your corporate and your personal journey as a scale-up leader and as a kind of Mr. Motivator on the uh, Zoom sessions. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and thank you also for being so very candid. Oh, well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and um, I I hope this was useful. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.